Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from it. God, help us by your spirit. Teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us for righteousness sake. Make us more like Jesus. And Lord, help us to stand. Lord, help us in our weakness and in our time of need. Bless your children. Help me, your servant. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy series, which most of you, I assume, have heard of, The Lord of the Rings, uh, we are introduced to a race of giant trees called the Ents. E-N-T-S, the Ents, and their leader named Treebeard. These uh, shepherds of the forest are described as, quote, deliberate and extremely slow to decide on a course of action. As the dark forces of Mordor gather against the inhabitants of Middle-earth all around them, the Ents are eager to remain neutral. They are eager to avoid committing themselves to taking sides. Treebeard describes their position for the whole group well when he says, I am not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. But no matter how firmly they held to this strict policy of neutrality, no matter how strong their desire was to just be left alone, no matter how 
stubborn they were and their refusal to choose goodness, the time to make a choice finally came. And they chose to rise up against the dark Lord and his forces. Here's how Treebeard explained the ultimate decision. He said, it is likely enough that we are going to our doom. This might be the last march of the Ents. But if we stayed home and did nothing, doom would find us anyway, sooner or later. That thought has long been growing in our hearts. And that is why we are marching now to Isengard. We live in a world full of Ents. We live in a world full of ints, people who are deceived by a vicious lie, a lie that says one can remain neutral in the raging battle between righteousness and evil. But the neutral ground, hear me, the neutral ground is not safe. It might as well be sinking sand. Because the one thing you can be sure of in this battle between righteousness and evil, the enemy is not neutral. To the enemy, flags of neutrality are flags of surrender. And he is prowling around ready to devour those who are foolish enough to try and take such a stance. Jesus knows this. That's why he says what he says in verse 23. You can look there again when he calls us to stand for him. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. The truth is in the battle between righteousness and evil, you are either for Jesus, righteousness, or you are against him, evil. There is no neutrality. You are either one or the other. This is a reality. And it becomes abundantly clear in this entire passage before us this morning. Jesus, if you remember, has been teaching his disciples about prayer. But now Luke presents him in verse 14 uh, in another setting and he's casting a demon. He's casting out a demon from a man, a, a mute demon, it says, who in turn had made the man whom he possessed also mute. And if you don't know what that means, it means he was unable to speak. In part, this bit of information serves to ground this account in the entire greater context. You see, if prayer is battle, and indeed it is battle, if prayer is battle, if prayer is crying out to God, as we've learned already from the Lord's prayer, crying out to him to make his rule and his reign known and experienced on all the earth, your kingdom come, your will be done, then the enemy certainly longs to silence those cries. The enemy desires to shut the mouths of anyone that would seek to bring glory and honor to God. 
especially when those cries remind him of a very simple yet unchangeable truth. He's already defeated. He has already lost. And verse 14 reminds us of the enemy's defeat. As we've seen already before, as we've spent a little over a year now marching through the gospel according to Luke, Jesus is neither threatened nor hindered by Satan or his demons. When Jesus speaks to them, what do they do? They obey immediately. When he casts them out, what do they do? They leave, they go. That's exactly what happens here. When it does, Luke tells us how the people reacted. You can look there again in verse 14. The people marveled. They were in wonder and awe of what had happened. But even so, there are those who aren't so sure about what had just happened. Make no mistake, they were there, they saw it, but they're not so sure what had happened. So they find a way to oppose Jesus in some manner. You can see their objections in verses 15 and 16. And so to get us through our sermon this morning, these objections are gonna make up our first of three points. If you're taking notes, I know many of you like to, the first point will be the people's objections. The people's objections. There's two. The first of these objections is found in verse 15. Some, Luke says, are insisting that Jesus is casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. These objectors are what I call or who I call the antagonists. These are the antagonists, those claiming that the work that Jesus is doing is really just the work of the devil. Now, to identify Jesus with Beelzebul is, as one commentator says, and I quote, a wicked and pernicious blasphemy. Indeed it is. Beelzebul, you may not be familiar with that word. You may know it as Beelzebub. Okay, it was an ancient term referring to a pagan deity. It's a, specifically a reference to one of the many gods of Canaan. You can write this down and look it up later, but in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, Beelzebul is referred specifically to the evil god of Ekron. And over time, the Jews had come to identify this evil lowercase g god as one of the archdemons of Hell and some, even Satan himself. So Beelzebub became Satan himself. So to say that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebub was to say that he's nothing more than an instrument in the devil's hand. Jesus is just a tool of the devil what they're saying. And their antagonism toward Jesus and their outright denial, that's what they're doing here by saying this. They're denying his divinity. They're denying that he is indeed the eternal son of God. To make such a claim, they have to give some other explanation for his power to cast out demons. They had just seen him do it. So how is he able to do it? Apparently, the only thing they could come up with in the moment that Luke records for us is that he was doing it by the devil's own power. 
This kind of antagonism should sound familiar to us because such antagonism exists all around us today, not only against Jesus himself, but even against his body, the church. Rather than acknowledging and celebrating as we should that the church is God's agent of doing good in the world, that used to be kind of a universally accepted thing, even for people outside the church, right? Well, the church is still doing good in the world. What do people say now more and more? The church is evil and the church does evil. Now listen, bad things certainly are done in the name of Christ, that happens, but those things cannot ultimately negate the righteousness that Christ does through his body, the church. When the church stands up for the unborn, when the church defends biblical sexuality and marriage, when the church stands firm and proclaims that Jesus is the only way to God, when the church stands up for righteousness while standing firmly on God's word, it's a wicked lie to say that the church is unloving or ungodly. Because listen, when such opposition comes, and if you haven't heard it, you will hear it more and more. That opposition is not just an attack on the church. The church is Christ's body. It's an attack on Jesus himself. Well, I said there were two. There's a second objection. It's found in verse 16. Some being less antagonistic than others seek rather, it says, to test Jesus. Let's put him to the test. They're asking him to give a sign from heaven. Apparently, they hear the objections and they're like, well, we don't know. I'm not sure if Jesus is doing the work of God or the work of the devil. We're unsure. So give us proof. Now, what's Jesus been doing for over two years now? What's he been doing up to this point, right? Healing every manner of disease and sickness. He's raised the dead. He's calmed storms. He's fed thousands. He's cast out demons. Never mind that everyone is talking about this. There are so many eyewitnesses to what had happened. Oh, and by the way, they were there when this one happened. They were eyewitnesses themselves, but what do they want? More. They demand more. They want a sign from heaven. Maybe they want something like the moon turning to blood or they wanna see the sea part or some of these great signs from the Old Testament or signs of the promise of the coming of the Messiah. I don't know what they're asking for. We're not even sure what they want. They just want a sign. But listen, that skepticism is not any less dangerous than antagonism. Whether it's outright denial of Jesus altogether or a simple dismissal of him until more evidence is produced? Do you realize that both of those things, antagonism and skepticism, share something very important in common? Do you know what that is? A lack of faith, a lack of saving faith. One of my professors used to say, and I love the way he said it, skeptics are just polite, non-confrontational antagonists. They're antagonists, they just like to be nice about it. Such skeptics, and listen, they're found everywhere. Maybe you're here this morning and you would put yourself in that camp. What I've learned and what I've found 
is that skeptics often have no desire, no true real desire to know God at all. Most skeptics, they use their skepticism as an excuse, excuse to avoid hard realities like sin, hard realities like death, hard realities like judgment. And even though God has given more than enough evidence for people to believe in Jesus, skeptics seem content to do what Paul says that unbelievers do in Romans 1, suppress the truth in unrighteousness, hold it down and nurture unbelieving hearts by taking great pride in just how skeptical they are. I ask good questions. I'm a seeker of the truth here. I'm asking questions. That's a telltale trait of almost every skeptic. So we see here the people's objections, antagonism, skepticism. So it seems right that the next thing we would do is see how Jesus responds. So we'll look at verses 17 through 22. Again, if you're taking notes, this is our second of three points, Jesus's response. Jesus's response. He responds first to the antagonists in 17 through 19 by pointing out their absurdity. One of my favorite commentators is Dale Ralph Davis. I like the way he puts things. He, he seeks to put Jesus' response in kind of what he says, a colloquial manner or in common language. And this is how he pictures Jesus responding in words that Dr. Davis would use. And you can sense the sarcasm he adds to it. But yes, sure, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? That Satan would bash his own kingdom and his own works to bits. Is that something any self-respecting, clear-thinking demon would do? Satan is evil, but he's not a moron. Thank you, Dr. Davis. Satan is evil, but he's not a moron. It sounds silly when it's paraphrased that way, but that's exactly what these antagonists are doing. They're calling Satan a moron, appealing to this false logic. Jesus challenges them by pointing out a very simple truth. A kingdom divided against itself, what? It'll fall. It can't stand. A kingdom cannot rage and fight against itself and expect to continue as a kingdom. It's downright illogical. But Jesus doesn't stop with it being illogical. He keeps going. It's also inconsistent. It's inconsistent. You see, apparently Jesus is not the only person in the Jewish community who has the power to cast out demons. He actually calls these people your sons in verse 19. And maybe you remember in Luke 9, verse 49, the disciples are complaining about these other people who are casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they're all jealous and mad about him. And Jesus says, no, I don't do their work. See, in this day, it was generally acknowledged that when a religious leader performed an exorcism of any kind, that it was a sign it was a sign that God was working through him. The people of that day would honor these people. Clearly God is at work. Look what they did. They cast out a demon. It's a sign. But what do these critics do? They don't do that, do they? Jesus has just done what their own sons are doing. And they're like, no, not sure. You're doing it by the power of Satan. 
We're not really sure what you're doing. So Jesus catches them in this contradiction and calls them out on it. He points out that in denying that his power comes from God, they're essentially denying one of their own basic principles for judging the truth about the power of God in their midst. It's okay as long as it's one of them, but if it's me, it doesn't work. That's what he's doing. I hope you know, friends, that every attempt to deny God's clear work is both illogical and inconsistent. I think we can affirm that God is both the creator and the sustainer of all things. Do you realize that someone can't even try to reason God out of existence without using what? The very mind that he gave to them. We, we can't even shake an angry fist at God without what? Clenching the very hand that he so marvelously made. You can't even speak words of blasphemy against God without what? Using the very air that he provides. Noted pastor and apologist Francis Schaeffer once famously said, we cannot even slap God in the face without first crawling into his lap to do so. You can't even slap God in the face without crawling into his lap, nestling into his bosom to do so. So Jesus then continues his response in verse 20. He turns more specifically to the skeptics. Let's look again at verse 20. Look down there with me. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a very important phrase here, by the finger of God. That expression has its origins in Exodus chapter eight, where the Pharaoh's magicians now befuddled at what Yahweh is doing on behalf of the people of Israel. When they describe one of those deadly plagues that they had just suffered, they said, this we can't do. This is the finger of God. Jesus appeals to that same phrase here to underscore the truth that what these skeptics had just seen, make no mistake, they had just seen Jesus cast out a demon. It's indeed a direct demonstration of the power of God. The Messiah would come to set the prisoners free, right? To set the captives free. And that's what he's done for this person. They had witnessed a man touched by the very finger of God with immediate results, immediate results. The man was delivered. Jesus wants them to see, make no mistake, the kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God is here. I am the king and I am here. The kingdom of God is here. These signs that I've been doing for two plus years up to this point all reveal that I am indeed the one who has come. The kingdom of God is here. And to further his point, Jesus uses an illustration in verses 21 and 22. This illustration of the strong man. Now the strong man here is of course Satan. Right, Jesus portrays Satan as a, a wealthy prince taking his ease in this fortified palace. He's surrounded by his goods or his treasure. He's as happy as can be. In fact, the way it's spoken of here is that he's so strong that his fortress seems unassailable. 
but one comes who is stronger than he and he attacks him. He overcomes him and he's defeated. In case you're having trouble connecting the dots and I don't think that you are, but let me just say to be clear, Jesus is the stronger one here. Jesus is the stronger one. He has come to overthrow the pseudo kingdom of Satan. He's come to crush Satan's head and to destroy the power of sin and death right along with Satan. Make no mistake, Jesus is so much stronger than Satan's resistance is futile. And those who keep denying it will one day learn for themselves just how much stronger Jesus is. So now you have Jesus's whole response. And with that in mind, we come to verses 23 through 26. And this is our third and final point this morning. And I've titled it, The Crucial Decision. The Crucial Decision. Jesus brings this confrontation to a a head when he says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, when we come into contact with Jesus, we have a very crucial decision to make. Either we believe in his divine power and receive him as savior and Lord, or we make another decision to keep running with the devil. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. There's no safety, true safety in antagonism or in skepticism. Jesus is saying that we have to take sides. We have to ask, and I'll ask you, will I be, will you be for Jesus Christ or will I be against him? Will you be for Jesus or against Jesus? I know many people would rather not have to choose. Most people in our day do not even think of themselves as being against Jesus. Maybe that's changing. Maybe those words that I've just said are a little outdated. It seems things are changing so fast. Most people would look at the things that the church is doing and go, that's good. Glad they're doing that. Way to go. I'm with them. But are they? Are they? There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who say that. I'm not really against Jesus, but they're certainly not for him either. They're certainly not for him entirely. Whether they go to church or not, there's a lot of people who are more than happy to just admire Jesus from a good distance. Just, just look at him from afar as long as he doesn't make too many demands on them or their obedience. But that's impossible. <laughs> One cannot follow Jesus wholeheartedly from a distance. They can't. You can't love Jesus at arm's length. You can't. J.C. Ryle sums up the decision before each and every one of us very well, this crucial decision. And he says this, he says, let it be the settled determination of our minds that we will serve Jesus Christ with all of our hearts if we serve him at all. Let there be no reserve. Let there be no compromise. Let there be no half-heartedness. 
You see, if we do not follow Jesus without reserve, we're in serious spiritual danger. This is the point of that closing illustration in verses 24 through 26. The story about the demon who leaves and later returns. It's a difficult passage. I know it's somewhat of a mysterious passage, but what it does for us is it it actually lifts a veil for us of the spiritual realities of the unseen world, reminding us of this one truth, okay? Get this, if you don't get anything else from that illustration, It is this, that the only way to be safe from the power of Satan is to not just be emptied of his presence, but to be filled with the spirit of Christ. It's not enough just to get rid of the presence of Satan, but to be filled with the presence of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to just move it, the influence out of our lives. I mean, think of the number of times that you've seen someone who's in a really bad place and they take some really bold steps. They come forward. They want to make their their selves right, themselves, their lives better. Maybe they've turned from some terrible vice. Maybe they've entered into some other method of self-reformation. And there at first appears to be some progress, but because it's apart from Jesus, what happens? All too often, they return to that thing or maybe they get swept up in something even more evil. Perhaps maybe you've experienced this or someone you love dearly has experienced this. The point is that if we are for Jesus, if we're really in him, then his spirit takes up residence inside of us. He lives inside of us and our soul is secure. But if we're not for Jesus, then one day, someday Satan will indeed come and take possession again. And the illustration shows him as coming back with seven. It's swept. It's nice. It looks good. That's self-reformation. But spiritual change, spiritual reformation, true surrender to Christ and true regeneration and salvation through him makes us safe. I'm gonna appeal to J.C. Ryle once again. He, He drives this point home so well. He says, there's no safety except in thoroughly following Jesus. The house must not only be swept, he says, but a new tenant must be introduced. The devil must not only be cast out, but the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must fully dwell in our hearts by faith. Brothers and sisters, that is the true life of the true saints of God. The followers of Jesus in this life, there's There's no antagonism. There's no skepticism. There's no neutrality. There's no vacancy in the heart. And there's certainly no joint tendency in the heart. If a kingdom divided against itself is doomed to fall, how much more devastating will be the ruin of a heart that is divided between Jesus and Satan? It cannot stand. It will not stand. So which is it going to be for you? Which will it be for you? Perhaps you're here this morning and I'm really glad you are and you haven't taken your stand for Jesus. 
Perhaps you've reveled, celebrated your antagonism. Perhaps you've happily hidden behind your skepticism. Perhaps you're just oblivious to the whole thing. Wherever you are, I'm gonna tell you this, there's no safety there. There is no safety in those places. Without faith in Jesus Christ as your savior and as your redeemer, you're without hope, you're without safety. By God's grace and God's mercy, as a minister of the gospel, I call upon you right now to follow Jesus this very day. Choose this day whom you will serve. Serve the Lord Jesus and follow him. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible tells us you'll be saved. There's salvation in no other name, but in the name of Jesus Christ. Stop looking elsewhere. Look to Jesus, put your faith in him. And today, this very day, be saved. Maybe you're like so many of us, here this morning, myself included, you've taken a stand for Jesus, but the trials, the circumstances, even the temptations of this life cause our legs to shake even when we're trying to stand. It's a good sure sign of a growing Christian is that they know what it means for their legs to shake when they're trying to stand. I hope you know there's hope for us. There's a lot of hope for us, friends. There's hope for you and me. We have a great savior. We have a great savior. He not only blazed the trail to Calvary for us, but he sent his spirit into our hearts to lead us on our way to join him there as well. We're not left alone. So we're still here in this context of the Lord's prayer. So I think what Jesus is calling us to do is to keep praying to him. As I said last week, keep crying out to him. He's the stronger one. Cry out to him. Ask him to give us his supernatural transforming grace that helps us to stand when we don't know how we're going to and to stand strong once we do that. I wanna end by going back to Treebeard for a moment. When you bring up such an epic character from literary history, I feel like we should go back for just a moment. Remember what he said if we stayed home and did nothing, doom would find us anyway, sooner or later. Doom is gonna find us too, one way or another. Doom will find us. But we have something that Treebeard never had. We have something that he never had. We have the blessed assurance that whatever doom does come our way, we don't have to face it alone. The stronger one, our Lord Jesus, is most certainly for us. And this is the best part. He's already secured the victory for us. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Most of you know Romans 8, toward the end, verse 31. Paul asked this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Some of you are maybe already quoting the answer, but let me end by giving you the short answer. No one, no thing, no one or nothing. Praise be to God, amen and amen.